Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. Welcome to a very special episode of Voices of Private Equity. I can hardly believe that we're already nine months in to the podcast series. And when I reflect back on the conversations that we had at ILPA, when we first started thinking about launching a podcast, we were really intently focused on what could we do that would be different and why even do a podcast if it isn't additive. And so we landed on an approach that was really focused on people and on the, the humanity of our industry. And we had some access to really great people across the course of our conversations, some really great relationships all across the industry. And so we felt like we were positioned to focus on these people and you know, most importantly, their unique experience and perspective and voice. And honestly, I think we've been pretty successful at that. But what I didn't expect to cover so frequently or to see emerge as part of these conversations with our guests was all of the wisdom that they shared both about their professional lives and experiences and also you know, from a personal perspective as well. They all had really incredible insight to offer, not just on the industry or investing, but also their career paths, life itself, advice that they had received. And this was a really happy surprise. So I gathered a few of my colleagues at ILPA together to d- identify which are the pieces of these conversations that really struck them, their favorite insights from the podcast so far, really fun exercise to go through. And, and then we thought, well, why not share that conversation with our listeners? So today I've invited my colleague, Samantha Anders, who is a senior associate here at ILPA, to join me uh, to talk about some of these moments that really have stayed with us from conversations with our guests and some of the really salient experience that they've shared with us. Samantha, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. I'm really excited to be here and I can't wait to dive in. But before we get started, I'm also really excited to talk about our new segment. So the segment that we wanted to introduce is called Return on Experience, which is meant to be a little bit of a cute play on return on equity or ROE. And kind of what we're getting out of what we're putting in to private equity and and all this work that everyone's doing. So we've decided to mine the wealth of personal wisdom at our fingertips that podcast guests give us to make this a recurring segment. So from now on in each regular episode, Jen is going to ask all of our regular guests to share their return on experience. So if you like what you hear today, you're definitely going to want to tune in to this segment in each regular episode. And I'm really excited to introduce this as a recurring dedicated segment. I'm also planning on handing over the mic on occasion to other members of the ILPA team to take this on and also to to really prompt our guests to share their wisdom and their stories. So you'll be hearing more from Samantha and potentially others soon. I'm really excited about that, Jen. Now that we've set the scene, should we maybe just go ahead and kick off with my personal favorite theme that's emerged from our episode so far. That would be good. Let's do it. So actually, I really liked when our guests shared insights about life. I wasn't expecting that, as you mentioned in a, in a podcast about private equity. And I think looking back on the first episode in our series, these life insights really stand out to me. Yeah, that was totally unexpected, but so wonderful. Tanya is a dear friend. I know exactly what you mean. The piece talking about doing what you love, knowing knowing what you want and what you don't want. Let's listen to it. Having been in this industry now for 20 plus years and working with different kinds of 
institutions and teams and having different roles, I can honestly say that it's really important to pay attention to what your strengths are, what your interests are, and really what makes you happy. So I do believe that we are all wired a certain way. You can develop, you can grow, you can learn, but you are who you are. I believe that. I know that's true for me. And so I would just say to my 20-something self, pay attention to those things because ultimately it will be what brings you the most happiness and fulfillment in your professional life. See, right from the beginning, I just didn't expect that the podcast would get into these kind of life insights, but it is an amazing and an important insight. And I, in some ways, felt like she was speaking directly to me as she talked about what she wishes her 20-something self would have known and listening to to who you are and what you want, and that's what you're going to get the most out of it. And I think that we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more later, but I think it's just important advice that we should all bear in mind, not just at work, but in life as well. Absolutely. And, and it really struck me, um, Tanya, making that link about what's really personally important to us and how do we bring that to life in our careers. And in a similar vein, I was really pleased by how Neil Randall made that connection. Neil was our second guest. And he has such a personal take on why he became an LP, why he continues to find such joy in being an LP. And it also had me thinking about how LPs work, how their investment activities really do affect the lives of real people. Yes, I remember that too. Can you remind me exactly what he said? Let's listen to that. Honestly, I didn't have this impression when I started, but being in the investment realm and being able to have a mission. And being really close to that to that mission. So as an investor, to be able to invest on behalf of the educators and public schools in the state that you live in and do that in a really direct sense. I know our GPs get to do it and they get a broad swath of it, but like we get a really direct connection to that. And I think that's really special. And I didn't, you know, I honestly didn't have that in mind when I first started in this, you know, kind of 12, 13 years ago, but it became really apparent to me pretty quickly. And you talked to people about, about where you worked. I mean, I've had this sound kind of crazy, but I've had, uh, you know, teachers or coaches that I've, that I knew from growing up and they'll, you know, reach out and tell me, Hey, I'm going to be in the benefits office today. And, you know, I get the opportunity on occasion. And this is not like this doesn't happen every month or something, but on occasion you can actually go by and, and spend time with these folks. And it just, you know, brings it to light, like what you're, what you're doing and, and really the, the privilege to have a job that's got a, a real service component to it. So that's, Definitely something that I didn't know that I would really appreciate, and I certainly do. Yes, I see what you mean. I think that's incredible to have people that you've known throughout your life come together in your work and for your work to have a positive impact on them. I think for me, that was a big part of why I wanted to join ILPA as well. You know, my mom's a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher, a lot of my family has been involved in public service. And so it felt like a very direct link to me to join into this type of work. And I think that it's really important. And I know it sounds so cheesy, but to listen to both Neil and Tanya talk about their work and how they make a difference and how then that in turn brings them joy in their role and in their life. It's a, it's a refreshing perspective on the private equity industry and one that we, we don't hear enough. Totally. And, you know, my parents may not completely understand what I do, but I can make it real for them when I talk about how my mother's pension as somebody who worked her entire life at a university and my father's pension, which is managed, you know, and his health benefits, which are managed by one of ILPA's members, you know, they're seeing the direct impact on things that are hitting their, their checking accounts every month, which is really amazing. 
One thing that we've really tried to keep the focus on over the course of the podcast is people and how private equity impacts on their daily lives, but also the people in our industry that make it work. And I have been really impressed by how our guests have talked about um, the people that they work with and the importance of thinking about people and talent within their own organizations. I mean, these are the folks that we are spending the vast majority of our waking lives with, right, every day. Thinking about what some of our guests have said, you know, I specifically zero in on some commentary from Orlando Bravo of Toma Bravo on, on exactly that, how a coworker really opened his mind to a new way of thinking about culture within his own organization. For us, I was trying to see how we could get the team buy-in early enough on this. And one of the things I would hear in the hallways is culture fit. We're so into culture and we have such a good culture. We're looking for people that fit our culture. And this young, uh, really talented person in our team said, hey, when you think about this, discuss it to the team that they should not think about culture fit. They should think about culture add because culture is always evolving and people have their imprints on a culture. Your values and principles may be the same, but that, that evolves over time. And then once people got uh, bought into that, it wasn't one of the senior members of the organization that said, let's go recruit in college. Let's do things differently. It was the junior people, the younger people that want to do it, which I think is just absolutely awesome. Yes, his organization's approach to culture and to diversity, equity, and inclusion is incredible. And I think that point that he makes is so important that you should be thinking about culture ad, not culture fit. And I think another distinction on that is when you just look at culture fit, you really continue to hire the same types of people and the people who look like you, think like you, talk like you. And focusing on diversity of thought and thinking about what can, what can people add, what can they bring different is really important for maintaining a constant evolution so that no one is left behind and left out and that good ideas are always welcome, even if they're new and different. And that can only happen if people feel confident in sharing their views. And that's why it's so important to put in the work to be inclusive and why Tomo Bravo is, is an excellent example of that. But I don't think that that's always been the case. Unfortunately, the industry has not always been welcoming. And to be clear, there's still a ton of work that needs to happen and is happening to move us in that direction. And I'm specifically thinking of ILPA's own diversity in action initiative that you are very, very close with, Jen. Absolutely. As listeners may or may not know, I'm spending probably half of my time or more on the Diversity in Action Initiative and ILPA's work around DE&I more broadly. And Diversity in Action is really focused on bringing LPs and GPs together to talk about opportunities to advance DEI, both in their own organizations, but across the industry with real focus on action, not, you know, not a pledge to act, but actually committing and taking action. Um, but there are so many great organizations that are really supporting this evolution and supporting our industry. Um, I think of PE Win, Wave, Black North in Canada, 10,000 Black interns in the UK, Out Leadership, Girls Who Invest. There are some wonderful organizations out there really working with our industry to make sure that our talent pipeline is as broad as possible, that we're really encouraging underrepresented groups to find a path and a future in our industry. We are making progress, and I think it's so important. And it also underscores the importance of really focusing on 
adding that diversity. You know, something else that Orlando Bravo from Toma Bravo said that's, that's not in the clip that we shared was that, you know, thinking about if an organization is presented with a problem, do you want to work for an organization that's like, well, this is the problem, but we're not going to be the ones to solve it. That's for somebody else to deal with. Or do you want an organization that sees the problem and it says, hey, here's what we can do to try to fix this. And I think that's really important as we think about what a tough club the finance industry is to break into. And I think private equity in particular, we know that historically a very specific type of person has succeeded in private equity. And I think what we heard from Neil Malik from K1 Investments about breaking into private equity is really important. One of the primary ways into this sort of club of investment banking, so to speak, was having in many cases connections with the people that were already on Wall Street, already on the inside, if you will. And these firms were not necessarily going out of their way to seek diversity on their own. And so SEO secured summer internships with over a dozen of these investment banks. And each week in this summer internship program that I had the opportunity to participate in, we were invited to a reception. They were hosted by the likes of Robert Rubin at Goldman Sachs, James Robinson at Merrill Lynch, Dennis Weatherstone at J.P. Morgan, and Michael Carpenter at Kidder Peabody, Morgan Stanley, Payne Weber, and so on. So I'm, I'm clearly dating myself here. But these were the CEOs of these firms at that time. And it was an incredibly unique opportunity to just be in the room with these people and learn from them. Everybody in the SEO internship program worked really hard and almost universally got offers to join their firms full time. This program, I think, was single-handedly one of the most impactful in changing the complexion of what Wall Street looks like today. Thousands of SEO alums have entered Wall Street thanks to the SEO Careers Division. I'm so glad he shared his experience as an SEO alum. And it's just an incredible pioneering program that has made such strides in helping to make financial services more diverse and certainly is focused specifically over the last several years on alternative investments and private equity specifically. It's been great to see. But it's incredible to think that it's only been a matter of a couple of decades, right? Um, That that work has really been going on in earnest and really only feels in some ways like it's caught a gear in the last few years. Um, But for a long time, financial services, private equity, to your point, really was or was felt to be impenetrable to those that weren't represented, which was such a loss in terms of talent and perspective and the diversity of thinking. So I I know that we're still at the beginning stages of a long journey, and it's not always easy to find that diverse talent, but it does not fall into your lap. You have to work at it. And the move that we're seeing across the industry that the diversity and action signatories talk about all the time towards rethinking how they source talent, going to new places, going earlier in the talent pipeline, I, I just don't think anyone could look at that effort and say it wasn't hugely beneficial which takes me back to something Melissa Ma from Asia Alternative said when we talked to her on one of our early episodes um, and her experiences as one of the first female-founded GPs. So let's listen to that. But again, the benefit of being a decade and a half in is that, and I think times have changed greatly, is that I have heard anecdotally from some LPs that are very, very close to us and are still with us what it was like to have discussions about Asia Alternative in those early days. And in those range of stories, Jen, what I would say is being a female-founded firm was at best neutral in those days from the stories I've heard to a little bit of being a liability. 
uh, haven't come forward with anybody who kind of said it was a benefit. I mean, I have heard of stories where people said that it was actually, you know, this fact that we were female owned was, and three female founders was actually in their investment risk section. And it was not necessarily because they thought that, you know, there was something that we wouldn't be able to perform, but a concern that the markets that we were investing in in Asia culturally were more patriarchic and that the vast majority, and it is, you know, unfortunately still true today, but then even more so, the GPs, particularly the oversubscribed GPs that we wanted to get into, were male-dominated. And how would we be able to fare and get access in that environment? And I'd like to think today that it's actually turned the other way around. We're very proud of the fact that we are female-owned and female-founded, even though we didn't, that may not be the reason that people picked us. One example of that is the PE Win had their annual meeting last week, and they do the PE Win Awards of the Year. Dana Johns and the state of Maryland were recognized for the second year in a row, and we've had a separate account with Maryland now for almost 10 years. And I can guarantee you when we were going through that process, none of this had to do with the fact that we were female-owned. It was that we were talking about building a strategic relationship to build out their Asia portfolio. Dana, you know, and the state of Maryland have continued to, in my mind, put their fiduciary duty first, but also balance it with trying to give opportunities to more diverse populations and now being recognized for it is just such a change in the way that when I think about those first conversations started with those public pensions in 2015. I remember listening to that episode and, and hearing her say that for the first time. And it really is incredible to think about that time that was not long ago at all when being a, a women-founded firm was seen as a, as a risk, and not just a risk, but an actual liability. And so much evidence today shows that having women involved in leadership across industries is really good for business and really good for reducing risk. So I guess we can take some comfort now in how Melissa feels that this has changed. And I think also gives us a little bit of hope for how we can make progress on other areas of diversity as well. Given where she started, I was really glad that we ended on a happier note in Melissa's commentary. But yeah, a poignant reminder that there's still a lot of progress yet to be made. We're still very early in our journey. And there are folks that are leading the rest of the industry. She referenced Maryland and their approach to their portfolio. Um, We've heard so much from our guests already and just in this conversation today about their personal experiences, what motivates them, how they've come up in the industry. But I'd love it too when our guests just really talk about the skills that they've picked up over their careers as investors. Um, Tim Recker, I thought, had a really interesting take on risk. Um, not the risk that Melissa was talking about, obviously, but you know, risk associated with being a, a venture investor. And his his program at the Irvine Foundation has a heavy concentration with VC. I remember how he talked about risk and thinking in decades to understand it. So for us, it's really about arbitraging time horizon. Most institutional investors are not willing to take you know, multi-decade decisions because of career risk. And so the amount of venture we have, the way I describe it to my committee is I'm taking significant personal career risk because most committees, when it's out of favor for five or 10 years, which is likely will occur at some point, they will get exhausted by the underperformance and will fire their CIO. And so we have talked about trying to think in decades, not in a few years and really be deliberate of how we evaluate performance of our venture portfolio. So we try to separate the tilt of the venture, which is a joint decision, in my opinion, between myself and the investment committee, and the selection of the managers, which our team wholly owns. 
Right. And it's such a good point and good insight on, I think, how we as people who are closely involved in private equity are more used to thinking about the asset class as a long-term investment, a long-term asset class and thinking in this amount of years. But it's a a good insight on how to maybe approach that with stakeholders who maybe aren't as used to that idea. And it really is how you frame risk and how you anticipate returns and being patient in venture. And Tim just has a huge amount of knowledge on that. But, you know, there's one guest, I think, who really stuck out to me for talking about an incredibly complicated concept uh, in private equity in a really interesting way. And I'm thinking specifically of when you spoke a lot about data. Yes, Steve Kim from Virtus. It was a technical conversation, but I think he really made those concepts digestible, but, but also offered a really fresh take on how LPs should be thinking about applying data to their investment decisions. In fact, I think he really turned this whole concept of data-driven investing on its head. So, so let's listen to that. And I think one of the things that we've come across is the term data-driven is really, really overused. And if you talk to 20 different investors, you'll probably get a different definition. So when we had that epiphany, we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that what we were seeing is actually correct. Uh, We started applying our data-driven approach in public markets initially. And that was for convenience reasons, because there was a tremendous amount of data that was already available there. But when we looked at that data, it really pointed to one thing. And this was the piece that was really difficult for us to get our heads around, is that markets have a strong random component to them. And we asked a fundamental question, why does this seem to be ignored in investing? So if the data is pointing to the fact that markets tend to have a very high random component, then why is it that investing seems to ignore that piece? And what would happen if we assume markets to be random from a baseline perspective? How does that change our investment strategy? How does that change the way we think about portfolio construction? And this set us on a path to understand the probability distribution of the asset classes we were investing in, whether they were Gaussian, which is kind of a typical bell-shaped curve, log normal power law, the tails and skews of the distributions. There are certain strategies that have distinct advantages depending on these structures. We still look for skill, but it's a bonus and is not really required for us to achieve our investment returns. And I think that was the epiphany. Wow. I mean, actually saying that manager skill is a bonus is such a fundamental shift from the way we and I think everyone really thinks about private equity. So it's such an incredibly interesting idea and that they have understood the data to a point where manager skill truly is just extra. And I think if anything, that just drives home how important data is in this industry. The team is really cutting edge in how they incorporate it into their investment strategies as well. So that was kind of an aha moment for me. And I think that a lot of LPs will begin to maybe have the same one if they take on more investment in data and analytics. But honestly, I think we could spend all day talking about this, Jen. So I wondered if maybe we could turn back to the start of our conversation for the last excerpt that we want to talk about. And your conversation with Kimberly Woods from District of Columbia Retirement Board was really powerful to me as As somebody who lives in the shadow of the Capitol, what she said about the events that took place in January earlier this year really resonated with me. And I think it would be a wonderful way to end our conversation today. So can we listen to that? 
Absolutely. Let's, let's play that. It's interesting for me because I think being a native Washingtonian, but sitting here on that day, watching what I would assume was a routine process in our country in terms of our democracy, it really was surreal to be in my home, to be on Zoom calls or due diligence calls that day, and to realize that the feel and the safety of the city visibly felt different. I think that as a country, we reached an inflection point where fear in certain spaces has taken over. I think that this is where diversity and inclusion really comes into play because I think so much of our inherent biases and feeling that we don't matter, that our voices don't matter. When I look at what occurred on that day, it was a sense of sadness. But I think I continue to have hope. I think we all continue to have hope. I think that showing my daughter, my husband, I showing my daughter that it is important to continue to have courage to speak up. But it's also important to know that we have to be respectful and how we exchange our perspectives was an exercise for all of us because I think that so much of what I saw in the violence was was quite disturbing for me. And it's not something that I would typically see in my day-to-day workplace. When I think about the parallels of the GPLP relationship, oftentimes there may be a negotiations where we're so far apart. And how do we find that middle ground, right? How do we find that middle ground in an environment that's so competitive in terms of allocation of capital. And it's finding that grace. It's using that grace. It's finding that middle ground. It's being able to recognize that at the end of the day, we all have our mission. The GP has the mission of being able to execute their strategy with the team they have. And as an LP, whatever that mission is we have in terms of serving our base, whether it's the the beneficiaries of our plan whether it's the support of our endowment or foundation, there's typically that commonality. And I think what I realized on that one day on January 6th, we didn't find that middle ground. We didn't come together to respectfully demonstrate. And I think there's just lots of lessons that we can all learn about coming together and respectfully having that that discourse and learning how to communicate and learning how to have differences but in a respectful way. So I think for me, it was a humbling experience to see. And I think it will forever be something that will be imprinted in in who I am as a person. And it's also a reminder of how we always have to have the courage to speak up and do what's right. I know Kimberly well. She is a dear personal friend. I am not surprised uh, by how poignantly she reflected on the events of the day. I thought she captured so perfectly the surrealism of that moment and sort of the reflection that that prompted for a lot of us. But I was also really touched by how she applied the experience and and what she took from it and the need for respect and the authentic search for middle ground in how we interact in our professional lives. Such a great insight. Absolutely. And, you know, I think for me personally, listening to her talk about that kind of hit me right in the gut, I think. And I think for a lot of people, it probably holds true. We have so many unfortunately, events kind of similar to this one. You know, 
I was a child during 9-11. I lived in my freshman year of college during Boston for the Boston Marathon bombing. I lived in Paris during the Charlie Hebdo attacks and now here in D.C. for this attack on the Capitol. And honestly, it's been hard to process and it's not something I've ever really gotten there with. And I feel like this really helps me, which I was not expecting from a private equity podcast. And then being able to take that and put it towards what we do in our day-to-day lives and, and making it impactful was just really special. And, you know, Kimberly said she was humbled by the events of the day, but I was also pretty humbled, I think, by listening to her talk about it. I'm sure she'd love to hear that. Samantha, this is great. I really enjoyed walking back through our past episodes and focusing on those comments and those insights that are really stuck with us that, you know, hit us in the gut, as you just said, those returns on experience. I'm excited to draw this out as a focused recurring segment in our podcast series, because they are such a valuable aspect of these conversations. And just a perfect illustration, I think, of how the diversity of experience and perspective in our industry is what makes it so special, so resilient. So excited to roll this out in future episodes to include you in doing so and to have more of the Elpa team on the podcast too. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me today, Jen. I really enjoyed doing this and I'm really excited to come back in the future. Thank you for joining. And to our listeners, don't forget to tune in and listen up for the Return on Experience segment in our upcoming episodes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.